Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Hello everybody and welcome back. Firstly... Depending on when you're listening to this, you might have noticed a change to the entire podcast name. If you have up until this point been listening to Tales of Britain and Ireland, then this doesn't apply to you. But if previously you've been a fan of Tales of the British Isles, I'd just like to very quickly acknowledge that yes, the name of this podcast has changed, and that has been applied retrospectively to all previous episodes as well. That original name wasn't a great one, and I'm much happier with this one. The content remains precisely the same, and that's really all that needs to be said on this issue, I think. This is now Tales of Britain and Ireland, and I very much doubt you'll notice much of a difference. However, one result of this is that the podcast has become temporarily harder to find in search engines and the like. Therefore, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, there has really never been a better time to review it, to share it, or to follow us on social media. There's a website, www.talesofbritainandisland.com. There's an Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and a Patreon with more episodes. Thank you to everyone who has signed up on Patreon already, or has left me a review. It really is fantastic to receive. Okay, that's quite enough of that. Let's get on with the story of St Trinian and the Bagan. Before we get into the meat of the story, I'm going to flesh out a little bit of background detail here. This is a story about a church. Well, a stone shell of a church, with no roof, no windows, no doors, just a few walls shaped into the skeleton of a small, squat, elongated chapel, with grass and flowers growing where there should be pews and worshippers. The Church of St Trinian, as it is called, is really but a small chapel in an unremarkable field just off the A1, the road that bisects the Isle of Man, running from Douglas on the east coast to Peel on the west. This church really exists. You can go visit it today. Now, according to archaeologists, it's got a long and venerable history, and the site was once a working church, with its roots going back to at least the 7th century, with the name of St Trinian becoming attached to the site, Much later, academics with their fascinating facts and interesting histories, we don't want any of that. Scrumple up imaginary piece of paper, throw it in the bin. Today we're setting all that history aside to tell a story of why this church exists with no roof. But please indulge me a bit longer, as before launching to the tale I want to give some further background on two areas that might be of interest. You long-time listeners will know that some tales I get right on with it, and in others I feel the need to waffle a bit at the start. This, this is a waffler. First of all, let's talk about the Isle of Man, where the church is. For those who don't know of it, the Isle of Man sits smack bang between the island of Great Britain, you know, the British mainland, and the island of Ireland, in the middle of the Irish Sea. The Isle of Man is a sizeable island itself, but not 
massive, I mean many of the Scottish islands are larger in size, and the population, while significant, is currently only about 80,000 people, which is the same as a large English town. When I first wrote this script, I said it had an influence that was out with its size, and while I think there's some truth in that, I don't think that's quite the point about the island that I really want to make. It's not so much that its influence is outsized, but more that for such a small place population-wise, the inhabitants of half a single London suburb, the Isle of Man has a very distinct, ancient and well-formed identity, which is highly culturally significant. To give its entire history here is far outside of my ability or the scope of the podcast, but it is a unique blend of cultures, drawing influences from a great number of surrounding regions and adding a good helping of its own, forming something utterly unique. There are strong connections with the Scottish mainland, with the Scottish islands, with Ireland, with Wales, with England and even with Norway. Critically, despite its small size, the island is an entire nation in and of itself, culturally and legally. In that second, I mean that the Isle of Man is not technically part of the United Kingdom, though it's not quite an independent country either. It occupies a halfway house position that's shared with only a few other territories, in what is called a Crown Dependency. That crucially means that it is not ruled directly from London. Rather, it has its own parliament, the Tin World, which claims to be the oldest in the world, supposedly dating back over a thousand years and still governing over the island today. Not only does it have this rare status, but the nation has its own language, Manx, which is a language very closely related to Irish and to Scots Gaelic. The language was almost extinct by the middle of the 20th century, but since then considerable effort has been made to save it, with some success, and about 2% of the population can speak it today. All of this makes it very culturally notable, and the Isle of Man has the distinction of being one of only six Celtic nations, the others being Scotland, Ireland, Brittany, Cornwall and Wales. An esteemed table at which Ellen Vannin, as the island is called in Manx, has a well-deserved place. And finally, and very relevant to us, the island is just stuffed to bursting with myths and folklore and legends, absolutely jammed-packed with the things. On a folk story per capita or per kilometre basis, it's got to be right up there as one of the top ranking in possibly the whole world, but certainly within Britain and Ireland. There are, amongst others, fairies, the Fenodery, mermaids, the Glashtan, the Movadu and the Bugurn, which we'll eventually talk about today. It's associated with Arthurian legends, with Christian saints, and with stories of the Irish Fenian cycle. The very name of the place is widely held, be it true or not, to come from that of the Celtic god of the sea, kind of, that's a whole other thing, we'll get into that in another episode, Mananan MacLear, who is now really strongly associated with the Isle of Man. This is a place positively splitting at the seams with stories. And if you believe those stories, then the island and the sea surrounding it is home to a great multitude of supernatural creatures, gods, monsters, heroes and much more besides. And it's this aspect of the island I want you to remember as we come on to discuss the next background detail. Because I want to talk a little bit about the coming of Christianity to all these British and Irish islands, and particularly the role that saints had to play. 
Now our story is going to be set after this period, but I feel it's worth having a bit of a grounding in this. It's something we'll be coming back to in later episodes, but let's set the scene here. Forget what you might know about quote-unquote history and what these islands looked like before the arrival of Christianity. Just set all of that stuff aside. It's baggage. Let me instead set out how it goes down in medieval legends when Christianity arrives on these islands. The lands at that point are dangerous, wild places filled with pagan gods, cults and other weird beings, all of which are, to a greater or lesser degree, opposed to the Christian god, or at the very least, not a part of that god's plan. Some of these beings are fully aligned with the infernal realms and the diabolical, but many others are kind of more halfway, just creatures or things that exist that don't seem to fit anywhere into the great human-dominated world of the New Testament God. The fairies, the giants, and others like them. And while he, with a capital H, has left these lands alone for thousands of years, now he's very concerned with establishing his power over the world, through his servants, the church and the saints. They aren't anything like saints today. They are far more of a kind of wizard hero. Great people, often from the continent, but equally likely to be natives to these lands who had been converted early or travelled to Rome to receive instruction and have now returned. These saints were spreading the good news verbally, orally, telling people about how great Jesus was, yes. But also, and crucially to their conversion success, they were channeling their theomantic power to win over the hearts of people and to prove the very literal and concrete existence of God to these folk. Because, boy, at that point did they have proof. Individual saints could, with their powers, just for instance, reroute rivers, cure plagues, raise hills, and even, and often, resurrect the dead. But they frequently used them as well to combat those non-Christian beasts and gods and what have you. To pick just a few of the most notable accounts, you have St Columba squaring off against the Loch Ness Monster. You've got St Patrick destroying the cult of Crom Cruach. Saints turning giants to stone in locations stretching from the Hebrides down to Cornwall. And you have saints banishing dragons all over the place. And in the wake of this elite-tier superpowered vanguard came all the spread of the rest of Christianity, which combated all the lesser spirits, the fairies and boggarts, terrified of the blessings of the priests and the ringing of the bells, forced into more remote places, until finally those beings, once so pervasive and strong across the land, merely cower on its lonely outskirts. Christianity and the old beings of the island were at war, and the Christians were winning hands down. In the first round, the abilities of the saints and the willingness of God to step in with all his power was a huge advantage. In the second, the sheer ubiquity of Christianity amongst humanity prevented a resurgence. And yet, in some places, despite the Bible, the prayers, the blessings, the bells, the creatures from before still managed, just about, to hold out. And this is a story of one such. As I said before, this story starts several hundred years after those first battles have been waged. Those adventure party-ready saints have largely retreated from the lands. They are remembered and they are immortalised everywhere. And they are even kind of worshipped in a way not 
entirely dissimilar to how local deities had been beforehand, and some of their power still remains in this world. And now, to the story proper. Our story proper starts on the boat of a down-on-his-luck Irish chieftain, desperately hoping that one of these saints' powers will help him out. Brodar is his name, and he has recently branched out from chieftaining into simple thievery, and he's now in his getaway boat trying desperately to sail away from Ellen Vanin back to Ireland with his ill-gotten goods. There is a bit of a story to this whole business, but honestly it's just not that interesting. To summarise, super rapidly, Brodar had some liquidity issues, but he did have a substantial amount of jewels. At that point, being an honest chieftain, he took his boat from Ireland to the Isle of Man, where there was the early medieval equivalent of a cash converters. Some rich man prepared to give him a loan if he in turn would give up his jewels as security. But Brodar, you see, Brodar had gotten clever, quotation marks, and he had gotten the very not-security-conscious lender steamingly drunk, then took both the money he was being offered and his own jewels, put them in a sack with swag written on it, donned that tasteful black-and-white outfit, put on a mask, and hightailed it back to his ship at port, and screamed to his crew, Go, 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 go! A convoluted, intricately planned Ocean's Infinity heist, this was not. It was a crime of opportunity but it had gone perfectly. The man they'd robbed would probably be still sleeping it off for days before he noticed, and Brodar and his men were already on their way back to Ireland, and very unlikely to be pursued there. But the thing was that they were leaving the Isle of Man. Supernatural beings abounded in that place. In fact, they were so run-of-the-mill, their presence so acceptable and normalised, that by now the mechanism of bureaucracy had swung into action and processes had been developed to minimise the risk of them. Just as now we have rigorous food safety standards and policies and all that kind of health and safety stuff that creates endless forms and is very business unfriendly, just red tape, just to save people's lives. Do you hate freedom? Well, they then on the Isle of Man had procedures for dealing with the supernatural that were quite similar. And one such procedure was very specific and never to be missed. It's actually not too dissimilar today to regulations that try to stop invasive species moving from country to country, though implemented for a slightly different reason. So, any boat sailing from the Isle of Man? Well, a total decontamination was necessary, because docked in the port of Peel, there was no telling what could have gotten on board. It was a fairly simple procedure. Before any ship set sail from the Isle, all that was needed was to carry a burning brand from a freshly kindled fire all over the vessel while muttering prayers and the like. This alone would be enough to drive out the fairies, the buggins, the witches, and all other supernatural stowaways that might have crept onto the ship and hidden in it while it was docked. It seems they were attracted to ships kind of like hedgehogs into an unlit bonfire. No word on if they rolled up into adorable little balls, though. Now, in their haste to make good their getaway, this vital step had been skipped over by Brodar's crew. 
and unbeknownst to them, they had a passenger. The passenger was a bugurn, a word I've said a few times now, and you might be thinking, what is a bugurn, Graham? Well, that's a good question, and it seems there are at least as many varieties of bugurns as there are varieties of hinds. Consistent descriptions of these magical beasts are hard to come by. It's kind of a catch-all umbrella term for a class of supernatural beings, more like mammal than, say, mouse or whale. And any more exacting classification attempt is further stymied by the fact that Bagurns could change shape. But if we were to just discuss the Bagurns' most standard shape, its bog-standard baked bean form, that in which it was most comfortable, most felt like itself maybe, well, it appears that that would be of a huge, hairy, fanged creature, flame-eyed, all terrible and bestial. I'd say perhaps a little like a black-furred abominable snowman, but that's just an excuse to say abominable snowman because I love that phrase and I haven't yet said it on the podcast. Now, if it had been in that form, it's the sort of thing you'd notice on a pre-modern ship, even if you hadn't gone around and done the Bernie Fire praying business. But the Bagurn that was on the ship as the thieves set off had not crept on in such a form. It had taken a far smaller, though no less horrific shape, some little horned imp with an evil grin and a general appearance to which the word mischievous seems almost to be magnetically drawn. It had been merrily investigating the boat of these foreigners, likely rubbing its tiny taloned hands together with glee and plotting all kinds of minor acts of sabotage, when it became aware that the previously still vessel was now moving, with some fair speed. Was this its opportunity to break free of its containment on one land, to spread its malice across the sea, beginning to take over the whole world beyond the Isle of Man? For the Bagurn, it most definitely was not. For it was malevolent and tricksy and fearsome, but what it liked most of all was home. Home where it was settled, where it was relatively safe. A cosy little island to run rampant on, where it knew how things worked. No international traveller, this beast. At heart, it just wanted to curl up in front of the metaphorical half-fire burning in the parlour that was the Isle of Man. Yes, it had been curious about this new ship that had come to its homeland without asking permission, but that was it. The Bagurn did not want to be aboard this vessel anymore. And here, in the waters of man, it had considerable power still. The creature flexed its magical muscles, and summoned up a westerly wind to blow the boat back towards Alenvenin. Up sprung the wind, much to the surprise of the crew, for the day had been very calm. Now, though they didn't know its origins, the gale that appeared from nowhere was not at all to the liking of the ship's crew, and to Brodar in particular. They really didn't want to go back to the Isle of Man. But despite their oversight in failing to perform the cleansing, this crew were no bunch of wet-behind-the-ears slouches. A little bit of breeze was not going to stop them. So they did all those nautical things that need done in such circumstances. Trim the sails, braced the yards straight up, made everything secure, took in the reefs. Listeners, just to level with you here, I'm reading this from a list. I have no idea what most of these things are. And the two most experienced men were placed at the helm to manage the tacking as the ship sailed into the wind. And progress was made. The Isle of Man grew more distant. Ireland grew ever closer. 
This infuriated the Bagurn, and it redoubled its efforts, made the wind blow stronger. But the crew continued with their own skills, and while their progress slowed under the onslaught, progress was nevertheless still made. Until finally, something in the Bagurn snapped, and its plan changed from simply directing the ship back to taking it all the way back to the island at speed and destroying it into the bargain. For if there was one consistent characteristic to this particular Bagurn through all these stories of it, it's that it really didn't like to be challenged. The Bagurn roared and the wind and the rain transformed into a storm the likes of which had not been seen in those seas for a century. The crew were now powerless against it. They started to try and turn the vessel, all thoughts of their crime now gone, their only concern was to get back to shore and save their lives. But it was too late. A mast snapped, falling down onto the boat and then over the side. Where it had smashed down it had cracked into the hull and water began to pour in. All efforts to control the boat were now good as impossible, and it was carried by the winds and the waves back to the isle at terrifying speed and on a collision course with the rocky coast. Men were strewn around the deck, trying desperately to keep a hold onto something to stop themselves being washed overboard. Brodar looked around in desperation. He had only one option left. This chieftain and amateur robber produced from his pouch a small leaden image of Saint Trinian, and he held it in his hands and he prayed for all that he was worth. This early Pictish saint was centuries dead by this point, but his cult was very much alive, and Brodar was a believing member, even if he hadn't been the most attentive until this very point in his life. Praying and bargaining he was, because that's how saints and the divine worked. They didn't just make life easy for you, do what you ask. Oh, no, no, no. They had an agenda, and it was no good just to demand from them. In a manner similar to the idols of the gods that went before them, that had demanded food and drink and sometimes blood, the Christian power too had desires that you as a worshipper could offer to fulfil. It desired gold, for it was an avaricious god. It desired worship, for it was a vain god. It desired the spread of the church, for it was a power-hungry god. And it wanted the defeat of sin, because this god demanded obedience. And Brodar knew this. His whole society had taught him this from a young age, and so he knew that if he had any chance of stopping this unnatural storm, he'd have to give everything he'd got. Brodar begged. St. Trinian, please, I know I've not been a good man, I know it, but if you stop this, then I swear I'll return that Manx man all his money. The storm continued just as fiercely. Brodar babbled. Uh, I'll build a church for you, uh, dedicate it to yourself. The storm continued still. The saint seemed unmoved. Brodar took this as a sign that, perhaps reasonably enough, the saint didn't quite trust this eleventh hour conversion. I promise, I promise I'll never sin again, and I'll give that Manx man every coin back and apologise to him, and I'll sell all my jewels, and I'll build you a church as far inland from this horrible sea as I possibly can, just as long as you hurry up and please save me right now. The boat still pitched and tossed, but in Brodar's hand the statue started to glow slightly. Somewhere, perhaps in heaven, perhaps in purgatory, perhaps simply within the icon itself, 
a being that was Saint Trinian himself, or an aspect of him, an avatar of him, heard the prayer, considered the offer. Metaphorically, it turned its head to look down at the doomed vessel beset by the Bagurn. It made a decision. And that thing that was sort of Saint Trinian pulled aside the veil from the other place and he stepped into the physical world. There he stood, firmly and assuredly on the moving deck, with the cowering Brodar looking up at him in fear and awe. The saint, all glowing white, didn't say a word, but immediately got to work. First, he waved a hand and quelled the winds and with them the sea. The storm clouds dissipated, the boat steadied. Next, a more gentle breeze arose at St Trinian's bidding. It redirected the imperiled ship from its course towards the deadly rocks, instead guiding it to Peel Harbour. By the way, I'm going to acknowledge now that some of you, the older British ones amongst you perhaps, might be asking whether St Trinian was sporting, I don't know, braids, knee-high hosiery, a blazer, a loose tie and a short skirt. And I think it's fair to assume that he wasn't. Given the images I've seen of him, I think it's far more likely that he was dressed in a robe and carrying a crozier. That's the proper name for a bishop's crook. Sorry about that. You are at liberty to imagine him in whatever outfit you want, though. Now, the boat still leaked and was rapidly taking on water, but St Trinian raised that crozier, waved it, and a great mass of seaweed washed into the gash in the side of the ship, filling it tight in a most improbable way and stopping the leak. The vessel was saved and on a path back to a safe harbour. Broda stared in stupefied wonder and began to babble his thanks and repeated his offerings, promising again to build that church. But he was cut off when there came a terrible rage-filled shriek from across the boat. At the other end of the re-horizontal deck was the Bagurn. In vain it tried to conjure again the mighty winds that had assailed the vessel so viciously just moments ago. But every time it tried it felt a divine force emanating from St Trinian, dampening the Bagurn's own power which stuttered like a stalling engine. And now it was really furious. A small imp's form would no longer do. It was time for a transformation sequence. The camera pans around the imp at speed. Its tiny arms bulge and elongate. Its body ripples outwards and upwards. Its legs shoot down to their tree trunk size. And its mouth and face stretch and warp. And when it opens its jaw, it reveals a butcher's shop worth of knife-shaped teeth and a huge coiling black tongue. Finally its eyes turn ember red and now on deck stands a hideous demonic figure the weight of which destabilizes the boat, towering over Brodar, St Trinian and the terrified crew. It tilts its head back and it bellows.
The avatar of St. Trinian swings his crozier down to his side, crouches down, points it at the monster. And the fight begins. It goes something a bit like this. The screen is split in two diagonally, and the combatants appear in profile. Music plays behind them a little like this. There is nothing in the background of the images but a colour palette that reflects the personalities. Behind the Bagurn is all black and red, behind St Trinian all white and gold. The camera zooms in further to just their eyes. And then quickly the scene rapidly cuts from the Bagurn running at St Trinian to St Trinian running at the Bagurn with speed lines behind both of them. They run back and forth, the camera cuts, the total movements of both of them seeming to cover a far greater distance than the length of any ship deck. But finally the two figures are on screen together, they jump into the air and into each other and they clash. And it's a terribly uneven contest. I'm not quite sure how the Avatar of St Trinian did it. Perhaps he swung that crozier like a mighty club. Maybe he held out one hand dramatically and a great force blasted from it, represented by an appropriately coloured beam of light. Or perhaps yet he held his hands together in a gesture of prayer and supplication, channelling the divine that interceded on his behalf with the sound of a choir of angels. But however it was done, the result was that the Bagurn found itself flying through the air at great speed, its trajectory arcing up onto the top of the very cliff it had aimed to wreck the ship against. It hit the ground with a great force and a very painful sounding smack. It dragged itself up, its peculiar warping bones aching, but it stamped and it howled and it cursed as it watched helplessly as the damaged ship limped its way into Peel Harbour. Now you might think that the creature would be grateful for being back home where it wanted to be after all, but the Bagurn was not so reasonable. Rather a deep hatred for the saint welled up inside it. The creature had heard the deal that Brodar had struck, and the idea of that saint having a permanent presence on the island filled it with a deep fury. Saint Trinian shall never have a whole church in Ellen Vanin, it shrieked, which went unnoticed in the ship down below. Brodar made it back to the island a changed man, all thoughts of thievery banished from his mind and replaced with a deep conviction that his life must be a spiritual one from now on, full of peace, love and honesty, something that seemed likely to be a bit of a disaster for his long-term prospects in the cutthroat world of chieftaining, but that was yet to come. Now we'll gloss over the next bits rapidly. Brodar never wavered in his commitment to the promises he made. I imagine the physical manifestation of a saint is pretty much guaranteed to ensure deep faith in even the most sceptical. Even if he had wished to go back on his pledges, the memory of St Trinian so casually and violently dispensing with the Bagurn would probably have caused him to reconsider. So he returned the money he'd stolen, which must have been awkward, and perhaps he just tried to explain it away as an honest mistake. Sorry about that, we, we just plain forgot, no, took it with us, a clumsy old me. We're back now, don't ask about the state of our boat. 
Oh, and by the way, no, I'm not from these parts, but I'd quite like to establish a church here. To St. Trinian, not related to the boat. You know, St. Trinian, the Pictish one, very important to me personally. In the middle of the island, far away from the sea, thank you very much. And of course, the moneylender was a well-connected man who happily bought all of Brodar's jewels from him, which was enough to fund the construction. And by happy coincidence, he knew just the site for a church. Soon it was all arranged, and construction began on St Trinian's. No, not that St Trinian's. And now a quick aside here. In the main source that I'm pulling this from, it states that the land to build the church on was acquired in the following manner. Formed part of a farm that was mortgaged to him, that's the moneylender, by a poor farmer, and as he was in arrears with his payments of interest, he, the moneylender, should give orders to foreclose at once and take possession of the property. Which, wow. They kicked a poor farmer off his land, quite likely his family too, in order to build a church. Real Christian there, guys. Good work helping the poor. Jesus would have loved that. Anyway, this isn't happening in the version of the story I'm telling you. In my version, let's say, either somebody wanted to give up the land to the church, or he was exchanged at a fair price. Because, seriously, fuck that noise. I'm trying to make these church builders out to be the good guys, and otherwise, I'm kind of really with the Begurn. Now, the plans weren't for, admittedly, the biggest church ever, but Brodar was hardly the richest chieftain. He was originally trying to get some money after all. And it was an adequate church. Small, but perfectly formed. Workmen were recruited and made busy constructing the building. Now, the site for this church was in the shadow of Greba Mountain, and could be seen from its slopes. And from that mountain, which, if we're being honest here, is really more of a big hill, the Bogurn watched the merry construction workers. They were a good-hearted, jovial bunch, all high-vis jackets, pencils behind their ears, drinking strong tea, wolf-whistling at each other affectionately while they passed, and treating any women they saw with the utmost respect. And as the Bagurn watched, in whatever passed for that creature's heart, hatred festered. Brodar himself had left for Ireland during the construction phase, the Bagurn didn't care about him specifically anymore. Its mind was focused on St Trinian. There were other churches on the island, to be sure. This was hardly the first and it wouldn't be the last. The island was a very religious place. But there wasn't a church to St Trinian, and the Bagurn had sworn a vow. There wouldn't be one. So when night fell, when the power of the pre-Christian creatures was strongest, the Bagurn would come to the worksite, destroy everything that had been done in the day. More alarmingly and dangerously still, it made crude traps, dug holes that the draft horses might trip in, and they did. At first the workmen put this down to bad luck, but after it repeated a few times it soon became apparent that something more sinister and supernatural was at work. And this was swiftly becoming a real problem. If things continued like this, work would very soon have to be halted. Now that little idol of St Trinian to which Brodar had prayed had been left with the foreman of the works for installation in the church upon its completion. The foreman of the works was, naturally, a pious man, 
and seeing the hand of devilry at work, he thought to pray to that idol. Almost immediately, St Trinian again appeared. The foreman seems to have reacted reasonably coolly to this. Now, interestingly here, we begin to see the limits of the saint's power. He knew the sabotage of the church was being carried out by the Bagurn, and he told the man as much. But St Trinian wasn't able to stop it completely. He couldn't just go smite the Bagurn. But he did have a kind of workaround solution. A solution which, to my mind, smacks much more of the works of a cunning man or even of a pagan god than of a Christian, though perhaps such a distinction is overdrawn. I might say something like, well, that's just Catholicism for you, but these little rituals seem to go even beyond the usual bounds of that. So what do I mean? Well, the saint left some very particular instructions for the foreman. Each day, every man was to wear in his hat or cap a sprig of the rowan tree and a bunch of wormwood and a feather from a seagull's wing, tied together with a strip of skin taken from the belly of a conger eel. That same charm was to be fixed in the headgear of each of the horses. And at night, every night, a fire had to be lit in front of the unfinished church, burning only the wood of the rowan tree, and a watchman must keep it burning the whole night through not let it go out for an instant. Its enchanted smoke would render the Bagurn powerless, but only as long as it was kept burning. And having given his lengthy, complicated and quite surprising instructions, St Trinian departed. The foreman did as instructed, though this all added to the cost, of course. A man overnight, a constantly burning fire, never mind the extortionate going rate on conger eels, the cost of this small church, already far over budget due to the Bagurn's activity, was reaching HS2 levels of spiralling overruns. Brodar was going to have to pay up some more if he wanted his church completed. Eventually, word got to him, and he did. So the new and unusual PPE installed, work recommenced. And this time it was much more successful. The Bagurn watched angrily and impotently from Greba Mountain. The taste of Rowan sickened it. Those wormwood gulls wing and conger eel hats offended its fashion sense. No more could it go close to the site. Maybe this was time to call it a day and get a different hobby. No, that wasn't the Bagurn's way. If anything, it devoted more of its energy to the church now. Stopped showing up at its regular karaoke Thursday nights where I assume all the other fairies and the like hung out. It didn't want to take its glowing red eyes off that church for an instant. And as soon as someone slipped up, it'd be there. A workman took off his hat and set it down as he ate his lunch. The Bagurn altered its shape, flowed down the mountain to the unfortunate worker, cast caution to the wind and physically attacked him in some way. Now he was free of protection. Usually, humanity and the supernatural residents of the islands existed side by side in a kind of uncomfortable truce. But around the construction of this church was all-out warfare. But it wasn't enough. After one or two careless workmen suffered the Bagurn's wrath, the rest quickly learned how serious things had gotten. They kept their hats very firmly on their heads. Over several weeks, persistence and hard work paid off and at last the church was nearly complete. 
and now it is the evening of the day before the consecration of the building that would basically finish the job. Then a church of St Trinian's would stand on the island and the Bugurn would be thwarted. Brodor was back on the island to help out, and the way this would work the following day was with a lavish ceremony of notable church folk, most notable of all the abbot of St German, who would lead the consecration, along with various other monks and priests, and a smattering of the island's nobility along with them. The workmen had worked doubly fast that last day to have it all ready in time, and it was almost finished. Just a small amount of work needed done to the roof that the foreman knew they'd have time to get done the next morning prior to the afternoon ceremony. It would be fine. Exhausted from the crunch-like conditions of the last couple of weeks' work, the construction workers took to their beds. Now, they were conscientious. They did not forget about the Rowan fire. But the poor fellow who had drawn the short straw to be watchman that night had unfortunately been co-opted to work the day as well, because, well, it had to be finished. The nobles were coming. Textbook example of a false economy this one turned out to be. For this workman, big and strong as he was, was knackered. He had a commendable work ethic though. He lit the rowing fire, got it going as per every night. That was all that was needed. It would burn for quite a while yet. Now he would just have a quick nap and be awake again to add more fuel to it in a couple of hours. He wasn't kidding himself about that either. He would have woken up and done just that. If it hadn't been for the Begurn. Soon the watchman was snoring and the obsessive waiting watching game was about to pay off. St Trinian's idol was nowhere to be seen, but the Rowan fire still kept the Wigurn at bay. It had considered this carefully. While its normal strategy was to go all out with its strength, it realised that any action too great would wake the sleeping watchman in his damn rowing hat and he'd top up the fire and that'd be the end of it. And while the creature dearly wished to choose violence, this was worth a little bit of subtlety. The night had been still, warm and dry and the watchman had taken that into account when succumbing to sleep and considering how long it would be until he had to wake up. So the Begurn summoned a wind but a gentle one, and as localised to the fire as its meteorological manipulation would allow. The flames blew harder, and the fire burned down more strongly. The rowan burned faster. And as it did, its power to hold the Wigurn waned. And seeing the watchman not roused, the creature increased the wind speed a little more, and the fire burned fiercer still. Gradually it increased the speed, and still the shattered man didn't wake. The fire burned hotter and fiercer and faster. Closer and closer crept the Wigurn as the fire got smaller and smaller. It called on its powers again, and summoned a slight rain now. 
Still not quite enough to wake the man, but enough to dampen the remains of the fire. Drops landing on embers with a sizzle, extinguishing them. Eventually, after all this patient, careful, delicate weather working, the fire went out. The night was dark now, but it was not silent, for the Bagurn roared triumphantly, waking the watchman with a terrified start. He took one look at the creature standing in front of him, jumped up, turned tail, and fled. It had no interest in him. It wanted the church. The Bagurn grew further until it towered over the building. And then it reached down and picked the almost finished roof off the building with a terrible noise. Beams broke off and fell into the church, tiles showered to the ground. This folkloric kaiju lifted up the rapidly disintegrating structure and hurled it down with immense satisfaction. The church roof broke into thousands of pieces, littering the ground all around. The Bagurn looked down at the ruins of the church and smiled fiendishly. St Trinian was nowhere to be seen in defence of his structure. The creature laughed, shrank itself slightly, and disappeared up the mountain into the night, leaving devastation behind it. And this, this is where the story really becomes about money. For the next morning, when the watchman relayed what had happened, and the great and the good who had assembled came to view the damage, an argument broke out. Brodar, well, Brodar wasn't doing so hot as a chieftain anymore. His money had largely gone into the church. And now that was in ruins. He pleaded with the bishop to just consecrate the church as it was, so his deal with St Trinian could be fulfilled. But the bishop, surveying the scene, who had promised the priesthood of the church to a friend of his, was aghast and having none of it. I cannot and I will not consecrate a church with no roof on it, and the blessed Saint Trinian of holy memory expects you to complete him a proper church and a shrine in accordance with your vow. I've given everything I've got to do it, said Brodar. Nothing more can be done. I have nothing more to give. And he didn't stop there. If your Manx workmen can't fend enough against the Bagurns and fairies that plague this place, well, I reckon that's your problem, not mine, or St Trinian's. I've done everything I can. I've paid him back double, triple, he said, perhaps forgetting it was his life he owed to the saint. I have done my part. I am finished. And so saying, he rode off, and back to Ireland he sailed. And I'm afraid there's no word on whether going back on the deal he'd already received payment on had any implications for Brodar. It feels like it really should have done. Given the power that St Trinian wielded, this breaking of the pledge feels like there should have been serious consequences. And there might have been. I kind of almost hoped that there was else. Well, what does it say about St Trinian? 
but if there were such consequences, they never compelled Brodar to renounce his decision, return to the island, and press on with construction. Now, obviously, the wider church didn't want all this work to go to waste, and the moneylender who had provided the land would prefer not to have a half-completed church on it. And yet, that's where the squabbling began again, about who would pay and whether they could keep the Bagurn away. And all the supernatural threat elements of this story, and indeed the situation, were drained away by the dull mundanity of finance and logistics. All the while, the topless, unconsecrated church remained, unfinished, devoid of worshippers, exactly as the Bagurn desired. The discussions eventually reached an impasse. At first, both sides decided that Brodar would of course return, change his mind. But such a hope proved to be futile. And neither church nor landowner had enough interest in renewing the construction and tussling with the Bagurn. There were plenty of other churches on the island after all. For his part, St Trinian seemed to have simmered down and made no interventions as he had previously. Years turned into decades. And in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't long before all those who were involved with the church were dead. The stories of those men over. Weeds grew in the shell of the church. Many lives came and went. And the building fell away from the attention of humans. Wildflowers, insects and animals made it their home. And that story the first building of the church, has now reached an end. But there is a story yet to tell. And just a little aside about this here, just for anyone who has reached this point of the episode and has already heard the story of this church and the Bagurn, and is thinking, none of this is the story I know. Because essentially, there are two parts to this tale. The bit we've just covered, that story that's finished, and this much shorter story that I'm about to tell now. Now, often it's only the latter story that is told, and the entire rest of it, everything in the episode up to this point, is skipped. But, gentle listeners, I wanted to give you the longer version, as you'll know well by now is my way. I'll discuss this a little more at the end of the episode, but just thought that was worth making clear. The, air quotes, usual story of the Bagurn and St Trinian's Church is what I'm moving on to tell now. So, back to it. Centuries pass. A lot happens in that time, but none of it in the shell of the Church of St Trinian's. Now, the exact impetus that compelled all this to change is unclear. You could say the island was more populated now, churches more needed. Whatever it was, some relevant butterfly flapped its wings or a pebble tumbled, and soon certain folk of the island were discussing putting the roof on the building that had remained abandoned for so long. Robert Quayle, in particular, led the campaign. He was a man of some note in the community, and one of those generic rich men who thought that getting the job done would be good for him in some vague way. 
Now, the passage of time had not erased the memory of what had happened during the initial construction of the church. Because while there were fairies and bagurns and magic that affected the island to some extent or another happening all the time, that victory of the bagurn over Christianity was sufficiently notable to be well recorded in histories oral and otherwise. And the people knew also that the bagurn would still be around. Unfairly as it seemed, age didn't take such creatures like it did mortal men. But they really wanted to put that roof back on. Funds were raised and tentative work began. Now they didn't know the ways of keeping the bagurn off. Those peculiar strange old rowan charms. And yet the construction continued uninterrupted. And a false sense of security settled on the workers and their masters. It turned out that bagurns belonged to centuries past. Those times were gone. Perhaps they even dared to take some pride and think themselves more holy than their ancestors. But unbeknownst to them, the Bagurn, high on its mountain home, had indeed noticed. And the passage of time had done nothing to dull its determination to keep St Trinian from having a church on the island. But it would just be more funny and probably less effort if it waited again, until almost the very end. Then it could unexpectedly do the maximum and most expensive amount of damage. So work on the roof continued, though some muttered still that the Bugurn was surely to come. And they were correct. But St Trinian felt it was time he intervened again. The saint's methods had changed during the centuries. His idol was long lost, so instead he appeared in the dreams of that man financing the construction, Robert Quayle. Robert was half awake in bed when a kind of ghostly apparition of the saint appeared, floating above him. Robert Quayle, said St Trinian. Robert Quayle, can I call you Bob? Bobby? Robbie, Robbo, the Robbler, Bobster, Bob the Builder. No, I'll stick with Robert. Robert Quayle. Robert sat bolt upright. Your noble efforts at finishing my church have not gone unnoticed, continued St Trinian, saintily. Well done, Bob. But alas, the horrid creature, the Bagurn, waits to destroy what you have worked on so hard. I won't give you the backstory to it all, it's taken quite a while to get here in this episode, but trust me, that beast hates me, and if left unchecked, it will bring destruction. But worry not, for I am here to tell you of a very unintuitive way to deal with this situation. Now, I know this is going to seem outlandishly particular, and the mechanisms behind it totally incomprehensible, so... Don't ask any questions, and just listen to me very carefully. Robert nodded. Now, on the night the roof is finished, the Bagurn will try to rip it off. But, should someone be able to completely sew a pair of red breeches inside the church the very night that the Bagurn comes for it, well, that will forever break the power of the Bagurn over the building. And I, St Trinian, will finally have a church in Lanvenin. Sorry, said Robert, a bit confused. Just to run over that again, uh, we, we've got to make a pair of trousers in the church 
on the night it's completed, and that'll save it. That's right. Well done, you Bobby Dazzler. But no cheating, no making a baby's trousers or something like that. Full pair of trousers, it's got to be that. Um, how does that possibly work? Why haven't you mentioned anything about the Rowan burning from before? Why didn't you tell the people who built the church last time this? Robert didn't ask. Just remember what I said. You'd better do this, or no church for you or me, Robert Quayle. Remember what I said. And St Trinian drifted up and out of the ceiling. Remember, remember. And suddenly Robert awoke with a start. It had all been a dream. How much cheese had he had? He shook off the memories of the dream, dismissed it as just that. But when it came the next night, and the one after that, well then it started to seem a little more compelling. No sensible man ignored the words of a saint, even if they were in a dream. And even if they were some very odd words. Now, our Robert was a rich man who was restoring the church to get into good graces with God in the afterlife and with the locals here on earth. He was not the kind of man who'd ever made his own trousers. But fortunately, the saint hadn't specified it had to be him. Word went out to the community, a call for someone who could sew a pair of trousers in quick time. A self-starter, used to working alone, comfortable in high-pressure environments. Some experience in dealing with the fairy realms, desirable. Luckily enough, someone who almost fit the description, apart from that last part, was available. Timothy the Taylor wasn't just a borderline Happy Families card. He was an experienced, successful local tailor, an entrepreneur, proved enough to be prestigious in his career, but young enough to have ambitions to make much more of himself. Here he saw an unusual opportunity to do just that. He was a cocky sort, this tailor, which is probably what you needed, and he rocked up to Robert with a swagger about him. I imagine he was making a waistcoat or something as he walked and talked, just to show off a little. Here you got a Bagurn problem, and you need the fastest tailor on the aisle. And that's me. He shot out a hand. Quick darn Timmy's the name and I'll finish all your seams. I'll do you a stitch in half the time to save you 18. Click a needle so fast they call me the sewing machine. Yeah. Channeling that Howard Moon energy he was. Rob considered Timothy. Honestly, he'd like options. But the man could clearly sew and, well, he was the only one who'd come forward. He tried to really impress the importance of the task onto the tailor. If this doesn't work, then all of this, he indicated the hammering coming from the nearly complete church roof, all of this work will be for nothing. I have it on very good authority that the despicable Bagurn will be here to disrupt our plans. And this sewing is the only way to stop him. This is very serious. Now, Timothy was very diplomatic here and didn't ask for the exact mechanism whereby making a pair of trousers would stop the Bagurn. He just cared about being paid. Don't you worry, I'll give you a church to St Trinian, said Timothy confidently. But this seems like an important job and a dangerous one. So, you'll pay me up front now, and then if I succeed, you'll make me the sexton of this church with all the income and prestige 
such a position carries. Listeners, I don't really know what income and prestige comes with such a position, but it was apparently a highly coveted one. Those are my terms, take them or leave them. And with little option but to risk the destruction of the church, Robert Quayle agreed. A few more days passed. The roof was completed. The time for the church's consecration was almost at hand. If the Begurn really was out there and wanted to stop it, this night was its last chance. Now I don't know if Timothy really believed in the Begurn. He hadn't been seen in centuries. But a lot of people certainly did, so perhaps he was amongst them. So I don't know quite what he was thinking as he made his way to the church that night. He was completely alone, whether due to a stipulation of St Trinian in the dream I've skipped over, or just plain caution and cowardice from everybody else. But the others wished him well as he went to his task. And now he walked the dark path through the near disassembled construction site and into the door of the near fully assembled church. He had brought all the materials he would need to make a man's pair of bright red breeches, and down he sat in the middle of the aisle, lighting a few candles around him so he could better see his task. And he set to work, singing a merry little song to himself, as was his way. His hands moved skillfully and rapidly with a fluid, practised ease that would mesmerise any who watched, and affect some in ways even more dramatic than that. The church remained silent as he worked, and he was just coming to the conclusion that all this talk of the Begurn must be so much stuff and nonsense, when there came a sound. Not a terrible sound, just the noise of earth or stone rumbling gently, crumbling. It seemed to come from just in front of him, but automatically he looked up at the roof, the Begurn's obsession. Had something fallen? No, 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 that seemed fine. The noise came again and the tailor's eyes flicked down to the aisle just a couple of feet in front of him. His breath caught in his mouth. He stared at the huge head emerging from a hole that had newly formed in the church floor. It was vast and frightful, with great goggly green eyes, distended nostrils, a wide jaw, and fierce, jagged fangs. But Timothy's courageous talk had not been bluster. He was a brave man indeed. He tore his eyes from the Begurn and focused back on his work, moving his hands even faster than before. This response was not well received by the Begurn and its dripping, awful more formed words. Timothy, do you see this awful head of mine? Hee <laughs> I see that, but I'll sew this. And on he went with his work. Powerful arms ending in large, clawed hands emerged from the hole, and the begurn pulled itself up further. And do you see this? My great body, huge hands, terrible talons. 
Timothy worked furiously, didn't miss a stitch, tried to keep firmly in the zone, replied, <laughs> Yep, I see that, but I'm sewing this. The Wagurn climbed out of the hole, and it stood in the centre of the church, a towering, fearful figure. Timothy, do you see my great limbs, my huge feet, my long, terrible claws? There was just a button left. It was so close to being done. But the Begurn went for him, and Timothy broke, leapt up, and more nimbly than he'd ever done before, he turned and he ran. The creature behind him laughed triumphantly. Timothy barreled out of the church door. He was scarcely through it when there came a tremendous crash, and in a shower of masonry dust and ripped woodwork, down came the new church roof. He risked a glance behind him, hoping that it was all over. There was the Begurn standing in the wreckage of the church. The Begurn he had challenged seemed to make fun of. And if there's one thing we know about this Begurn, it's that it really doesn't like people standing up to it. It looked at him. Timothy turned and ran at a speed faster than he'd ever run before, as though he had within him the power of the free legs of the Isle of Man. Behind him came the fearsome Begurn, loping along, angry at this man's impotence despite its own victory, claws outstretched, teeth bared, ready to tear the tailor to pieces. The tailor ran for his life and the Begurn pursued. <laughs> The monster was almost upon him and his body was failing him when Timothy suddenly spied Kirk Braddon Churchyard. Consecrated ground. The fort electrified him, spurred on the tailor-turned-athlete, and now he had a destination that was close, he gave it everything he had left, speeding up, just dodging a mighty swipe from the Begurn. He reached his goal, vaulted over the church wall and ran right to the building itself, finally collapsing in exhaustion beneath the chancel window. He turned slowly, and to his greatest relief, the Begurn stayed outside the churchyard. As he had expected, it was unable to enter, and it roared and danced up and down in frustration, spitting flames and cursing. But this didn't last for long, as as its fury built, it made one final attempt to end the tailor who had dared defy it. In one fluid motion it ripped its own head from its body and chucked it with full force into the churchyard. Acting on some instinct he didn't know he had, Timothy dived out of the way at the last moment, catching a look of pure malice in the eyes of the flying head for just a fraction of a second before it smashed into the side of the building and exploded with all the power and noise of a bomb. And that was about that. The sound rocked the land for miles around, and people soon found Timothy lying in the churchyard, basically unharmed by the way, physically at least. Still clutching those trousers, almost, but not quite complete. After word of that terrible experience got around, no further attempt was ever made to put the roof on the church. The legends don't say what happened to Timothy, if he found another way to fulfil his ambition, 
but certainly he didn't get his much coveted sexton position despite his bravery. And so, there the building remains to this day, a picturesque curiosity which you can visit if you please, though I don't suggest you try to do any sewing there, or put on a roof. And what all of this makes clear for me is that, for all his show of strength and power, St Trinian's authority had been very clearly checked by the power of the Bagurn. The seemingly inevitable, unstoppable spread of Christianity and the destruction of all the old ways has limits. For good or for ill, in some small places, in some small ways, the powers of those that came before still hold sway. Okay, everybody. Well, those are the two stories about the Bagurn of St. Trinian's. I first read the second story, the one about the tailor, in a work by Sophia Morrison. Sophia Morrison is probably the most famous of the 19th century folklore collectors working with stories from the Isle of Man. A Manx native, she collected a lot of folklore from the island in the late 19th century and early 20th century, culminating in the publication of her work Manx Fairy Tales in 1911. That work was very well received and popular. During her lifetime, she was an absolutely key figure in the promotion and revitalisation of Manx culture and language, and in the general idea, now well accepted, that the Isle of Man is a Celtic nation. She's definitely a very important figure in the 20th century history of the Isle of Man. And unlike some folk collectors, she even named some of her tellers. She was the first person to write down, or to write down very complete versions of a lot of these tales. She particularly used as her source fishermen of the town of Peel, on the west coast of the island, where the Manx language and its old Celtic culture hung on a bit more. And in her fairy tales, Bagurns crop up a fair bit, including a story whereby a Bagurn faces up to our old friend Fionn McCool, though not the Fionn from the Fenian cycle that has appeared in stories on this podcast previously. Kind of a different version of a character with the same name. Morrison says of Bagurns, quote, They can appear in any shape they please, as ogres with huge heads and great fiery eyes, or without any heads at all as small dogs who grow larger and larger as you watch them, until they are larger than elephants, when perhaps they turn into the shape of men or disappear into nothing, as horned monsters, or anything else they choose. So, given this, I was quite surprised when I realised that this story didn't come from her collecting. There's no subterfuge about this, this was my own confusion, but I don't think I'm the first person to have found this tale in her book, and assume that she collected it. Rather, Morrison writes that the source for this story is a well-known traditional tale found in all guidebooks. As simple as that, in all guidebooks. And that there, I think, gives an impression of just how widespread the story was on the island at that time. And that does not appear to have gone away today. I try on this podcast to tell more unusual, less well-known stories, And while that applies to this story on an international level, when it comes to the Isle of Man, this story is one of the absolute best known about. Or at least the second part is, the the Taylor story and the Bagurna merging from the church. 
I'll come back to discuss the other bit in a moment. So it appears that some variation of a story about the roof of that church being torn off by a Bagurn, and even of a tailor confronting it, has been knocking around for a very long time on the island. And for whatever reason, probably because it's a great story to tell for people of all ages as you're describing him creeping out the hole, it has remained very popular. Now the first complete record I can find of that tailor tale is from an 1845 work by Joseph Train. He was a Scottish antiquarian renowned for his friendship with Walter Scott, but he did a lot more besides. The account is contained in a work called, quote, An Historical and Statistical Account of the Isle of Man. This volume was part of a series of works called Statistical Accounts, almost all of which covered Scotland, with the exception of this one and the story contained in that is pretty much the complete version as I told it today. The only thing that isn't quite clear there is why the tailor is actually making the trousers. And I know that sounds odd because it's such a key part of the story, but it just launches straight into him making them, and omits saying anything like, and this will stop the Bagurn having power over the church. He's there just doing it to really wind up the Bagurn. And the first bit isn't present at all, that confrontation with St. Trinian. All we get is instead, quote, This religious edifice, the church, is said to have been erected in fulfilment of a vow made by a person in a hurricane at sea. Unquote. Which is kind of a similar idea. There are a couple of much less complete earlier references I've also come across. In a brief 1811 account, it's clear some story already exists. There it says that St Trinian's has been erected in consequence of a vow made by a shipwrecked person. And it says, quote, The present ruinous state of the building is ascribed to the malice of some unlucky demons, who, for want of better employment, amuse themselves with throwing off the roof. Unquote. So, demons rather than the Bagurn, though, but that could just be a more acceptable, more widely understood way than saying a Bagurn but it clearly doesn't involve a single Bagurn or anything with the tailor. Going back further still, a 1776 reference doesn't mention the Bagurn or demons, but does say that it was, quote, built, if you believe tradition, by a Scotchman who escaped a storm at sea and vowed he would build a church in the first country he would land in, unquote. And honestly, a Scotsman building the church does make more sense than an Irishman, given the Pictish nature of that St. Trinian. Anyway, you're probably zoning out now. What seems to be the case is that you've got two ideas and two stories built around them. Firstly, that the church was somehow built because of a shipwreck. Two, that supernatural creatures, or a supernatural creature, rip the roof off. So in summary, I'm very confident that the story dates back to the very beginning of the 19th century, but it seems likely it's even earlier than that. I came across one intriguing reference in my research, which was written in 1886, but I haven't been able to find any earlier evidence. That says that the Reverend Philip Moore, who was a very notable 18th century churchman, he actually translated the Bible into Manx, so an important figure on the island, Well, it says that he got himself into some bother with higher-ups in the church by doing the following. And just so you understand here before I quote this, I think explode means disprove here. Quote, He had attempted to explode some ghost or bugger scare by stalking about St. Trinian's at midnight, 
so that somebody actually saw the Bagurn or the ghost, or whatever was said to be there. The people had their belief in the Bagurn confirmed, and then, much to their chagrin, exploded again by finding that the unquestionable appearance was the curate. Unquote. So what that's saying is that the guy did a Scooby-Doo on them, tried to prove how gullible they were and therefore disprove it. Which, if it happened, is quite something. And if this is the case, then the legend certainly dates back a hundred years or so earlier than any of the references I've been able to find. Okay, enough of origins. To go back to that which I jokingly dismissed as boring at the beginning of the episode, the church itself, which is also known as the Broken Church, for obvious reasons, as well as St Trinian's, it was a new church built in the 14th century, that's the 1300s. It was built over a previous church, and it was this new church that seems to have been left unfinished. No one seems to know exactly why with complete confidence, but the reason might well be that when construction was started, the isle was under control of Scotland, and it was started by Scottish monks, which makes sense with the name of that saint, but the English invasion and conquest in 1343 put a stop to that. So a perfectly normal reason that the church didn't have a roof, that hundreds of years later, grew into a legend, because people are wonderful and creative. And now we really do have to touch on St Trinian. I wasn't really very aware of St Trinian beforehand. I mentioned in passing a reference to St Trinian's, which is a school in a comic strip turned film series about misbehaving schoolgirls, which is where the saint is almost certainly known by 90-odd percent of people who've heard of him today. But what I didn't know is that St Trinian doesn't really exist. Kind of. This gets confusing. So, you see, St Trinian, despite his appearance in this story, is just another name for St Ninian. Fair enough, language changes across borders. Sometimes he's called St Ninian, sometimes he's called St Trinian. So St Ninian is a saint who apparently converted or reconverted, it gets a bit messy, the Picts, who I mentioned in the story, but if you're not aware, they are a people who occupied lands in Scotland in the early medieval period, and a bit earlier. And in the earliest mention we have of this saint, he is notable for making a church out of stone when that was unusual. So, St Trinian is St Ninian. Easy enough. Except that it looks like St Ninian, or at least the biography of him that made him famous, is actually cobbled together from three other saints. I kid you not, St Finian, another St Finian, and St Finbar. So, to recap, St Trinian is St Ninian, who is St Finbar, St Finian, and St Finian. Anyway, despite his somewhat dubious heritage, there are dedications to St Ninian common in Scotland, the north of England, and the Isle of Man. There's actually a St Ninian's church in Douglas, in addition to the ruined St Trinian's. So he is now kind of a proper saint, even being a patron saint of Shetland, and having an official St Ninian's Day on the 16th of September. Okay, moving on to something else. Related tales. There's at least one other version of the Taylor versus the monster coming out of the floor story which has nothing to do with the Isle of Man. It appears in Notes and Queries in 1861. It's pretty much exactly the same story with some of the motivations changed 
but it's about Saddle Castle in Kintyre, Scotland. That's not that distant from the Isle of Man, but obviously the location has been completely changed. And in that story, it's just a generic apparition, though a physical one, rather than a Bagurn, which matches the location change. Also, it doesn't have an exploding head, but rather the apparition leaves a handprint in the stone above the castle, which isn't nearly as exciting. That story is called The Sprightly Tailor. So yes, nothing about the church, but it does show that this wasn't a completely unique story. Now that story is obviously later than the one at St Trinian's, but it seems that both stories probably have some kind of common ancestor or are variations of a tale that was being passed around. There's also a song that appears in a mid-19th century collection of Scottish folk songs that has a similar-ish idea, but a few more steps removed. I actually find that one kind of more creepy. In that, a woman sits alone sewing, and various bits of a creature assemble itself in front of her, from the feet upwards, until eventually appearing as a full, terrible being. When she asks why it has come, it replies, For you! This is a tale that's meant to scare children, but it's kind of even worse because the figure is meant to represent death. I've linked a good recorded version of that on the website page if you want to listen. So, it seems there's a general motif of something emerging bit by bit, and that is knocking around in Scotland and the Isle of Man in the mid-19th century. Train's Isle of Man story is the earliest in print I found it, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to discover there's an earlier version somewhere which I've missed with a different location. But what is certainly true today is that this story is now very firmly associated with the Bagurn of St Trinian's. Anyway, this is getting a bit rambly, but if you've been following, you'll remember that I've been talking all this time about the Taylor story and a vague reference to someone shipwrecked. So what about the bulk of the episode? The whole Bagurn sabotaging the ship, the moneylender, the showdown with St Trinian. Well, I've lifted that from an 1882 book by Edward Callow called The Phenodery and Other Legends of the Isle of Man. I've made some changes to that story though, because in that the Bougain is very small. There's a picture on the website, and honestly it just doesn't seem to make sense or look like any other version. And also probably because he's so small, Callow's version has lots of Bougains taking the roof off the church. Which doesn't really tie in with the rest of the story very well. Which was why I've changed it. So, Edward Callow was another Manx author, but one of considerable less renown than Sophia Morrison, and writing some 30 or so years earlier. He's definitely telling versions of folk stories that he's heard, but he's a lot less committed to the whole collection thing, and is much more interested in just writing a good book to make money or otherwise, using the Manx as a bit of a hook. So his stories are clearly not quite the original. There's a lot of extra material in there, and they're quite literary. He added a lot, and I mean a lot. Believe it or not, this episode is a quite shocking reversal of the usual way this works, where my version is slightly shorter than his. There's a lot of stuff about that moneylender that I just took out. So I'm not criticising him here, but just so you understand where Edward Callow is positioned, I'm going to quote wholesale from the website mankliterature.com on this, and say, quote, Callow's book was never meant to present accurate records of the tales. Rather, it was conceived of as literature founded in Manx folklore, rather than the pure folklore itself, unquote. 
Now that means there is some fair possibility that the whole bit about St. Trinine defending the ship was entirely made up by Edward Callow. Also, it might not have been. I just can't find an earlier version. As always, the disclaimer applies that this discussion section is inexpert. But I decided to tell that version of the story for a few reasons. Firstly, it makes it longer, and you know how much I love that. Secondly, it was the only story that adequately tied together the founding of St Trinian's after a hurricane and a shipwreck, and St Trinian's as plagued by the Bagurn. And thirdly, it seems like a good way to introduce magical saints, which I expect to become a bit of a reoccurring theme on the podcast, given how often they crop up. Anyway, I've made slight changes to his story, so what you've got here, as per usual on this podcast, is a mishmash of a few different versions of the tale to create a completely new one. Okay, other topics I might like to discuss are Rowan and the general non-Christianness of the magic combined with the Christian saint, but I think that's just a bit too much and this has gone on enough already, so I'm going to leave that there for the moment. A reminder that there's some illustrations, links, pictures of St. Trinian and the Bugurn on the episode page on the website, that's www.talesofbritainandireland.com. I said all that stuff about please support at the start of the show, so I'm not going to repeat it now, but I will say a massive thank you to all my patrons, and give a shout out to those who have signed up since the last episode, that is Tony, Neil and Vanessa. A new Patreon episode will be coming sometime later this month, featuring some more Manx folklore. Thanks as well for the reviews. Alex P12 and Mermaid Makers were especially lovely, and I really appreciate them. Now next episode, we'll be moving on to look at one of the earliest and most unusual examples of what has become one of the absolute mainstays of European folklore in the last two centuries, and which appears, unexpectedly, in Wales. Join me then, when we'll be discussing The Wild Hunt. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Music